On Sunday evenings, we're going through a short series considering some of the things that are required and necessary in order that we might make Christ known. If you're familiar with books written in an earlier age, uh, you'll know that many of them would often, on the very front cover, have the main title of the book, and then underneath, in much smaller print, there'll be a little subtitle. Actually, sometimes it could be quite a long subtitle, giving a summary of what the book was all about. Well, this message is a little like that in terms of its title. The main title is this, Keeping the Gospel God-Centred. And the little subtitle is, And the Dangers of a Man-Centred Gospel. Keeping the Gospel God-Centred and the Dangers of a Man-Centred Gospel. In our desire to see people come into Christ, there are errors that we can stray into. And one of the greatest mistakes that churches can make is to present the gospel in such a way that we place men and women at the centre of the message rather than placing God at the centre of it. It becomes a man-centred gospel instead of a God-centred one. One of the things to be noticed in this is that very often the problem is not what is taught that is necessarily wrong or untruthful, but that other necessary truths have been omitted and left out. So that what is actually said becomes quite misleading. Well, what I want to do with you this evening is just consider some of the things that can lead to a man-centred gospel. What might a man-centred gospel look like? Well, I'm not going to suggest for one minute that I've covered everything, but I want to bring you some of the main things where we can go wrong if we're not careful. What can a man-centred gospel look like? First thing, that God is a benevolent force that exists for your benefit, and that that's all God is. Just a benevolent force that exists for your benefit. The opening verses of John's Gospel that we just read are very insightful when it comes to Gospel proclamation. Now, yes, these verses contain marvellous truths about the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's the fact that this is how John begins that is also so helpful. Why does he start here? Why does this not come further on in what he has to say? Why begin with this? This gospel message of the Bible, John wants to remind us right at the beginning some important things. 
because this whole gospel about which John is writing is God-centered. God is at the heart of it. Christ is at the heart of it. So how does John begin? He begins by reminding his readers that the message of the Bible is that God is three persons who are one eternal God. The Lord Jesus Christ is the eternal God. This Christ of whom the gospel speaks is the eternal God. And this Christ is your creator. Therefore, he has claims over you, whether you like it or not. He is sovereign over you. You are answerable to him. You are accountable to him. Because he's your creator. True light and life may be found only in him and cannot be known without him. Do you see the foundations that John is laying to make sure that the gospel is God-centered? And he carries on. He tells us in these verses, as things currently stand, you do not know him. So if true light and life are known only in him and you don't know him because you can't, then you have a serious problem. He is light, but you are in utter darkness. And in your darkness, you will never understand a single word of this gospel. All of this is in these opening verses. This is how he begins. As things stand, you are not a child of God. You are estranged from him. Becoming a child of God is something that God gives to those who will receive Christ. A new birth is required. It's not going to be a physical reincarnation because it's not of blood. It's not going to be a new start or a new you that you decide to conjure up for yourself because it's not something that you can produce. In fact, in your sinful state, you don't even have the will to do it. You don't even have that. The whole thing is going to be of God. The end of verse 13. It's all of God. God is at the very centre of this gospel. This one who is the eternal three in one. And if it's not of him, it's not at all. All of that and more besides is found in the opening, opening 14 verses of John chapter 1. That's where John begins. He makes it clear that there is a deep problem in this world which Jesus has come to resolve and that we are powerless to contribute anything to it. On our own, 
we can't even understand the problem, let alone do anything about it. Now, compared to that, men and women are often presented with a gospel which begins like this. Because of your sin, you're less than you should be and Jesus has come to make up the difference. That's a gospel that many people hear. Yes, you're sinful, but that just means that you're not what you should be and Jesus has come to make up the difference. Yes, it's sin that makes you less than you should be. Jesus has come to deal with your sin, but he exists for your, better, for your benefit and for the betterment of your life for the rest of your time here on earth. He's come simply to make your life better. Now, there is some truth in this, of course. One of the dangers with these things is there's always some truth in it. But it's not the whole truth. And it can be a misleading half-truth. Jesus does make life better for Christian people. But what the definition of that is when the gospel is preached can sometimes be very different to what the Bible actually teaches. What do you mean by a better life? The thing to note here is that aspects of God's being, of God's nature, of God's sovereignty, of God's authority as being his by right, and that your sins are first of all an offence against him and bring about your separation from God and bring upon you his eternal judgment and condemnation too often when the gospel is proclaimed those kinds of truths are all tucked away in the small print somewhere and actually people aren't even given a copy that men and women are accountable to God is something that can't be detected anywhere sometimes when the gospel is preached God just loves you and wants to make everything better and that's it He's just this benevolent force that exists for your benefit. God and his gospel is so much more than that. And that leads into number two. Jesus is just a life enhancer. Just turn to him and he'll enhance your life. Well now, of course, those of us who are Christian believers can give testimony to the many ways in which we could say that our lives have been enhanced by knowing Christ. But a gospel that is not a God-centered gospel just proclaims a Jesus who's just going to make you better. The man-centered gospel takes all that an unsaved man or woman might set for themselves as goals and ambitions and say that now you've got Jesus on board, you can have them. 
everything that you wanted as an unsaved man or woman. With Jesus, you can have them. God just wants you to be happy and fulfilled. And so all that you've been setting your heart on to be happy and fulfilled, Jesus will give you because he loves you. God wants you to live in victory over all those things that might otherwise hinder you. And so he will give you victory over all of those obstacles. God wants to bless you with an abundance of good things. And such an abundance of good things will be evidence of God's blessing. Dream your dream. And in Jesus, your dreams will come true. I've heard gospel preachers say pretty much that. Dream your dreams. And in Jesus, your dreams will come true. I'm sorry, no, it was Walt Disney who said that. Not Christ. The man-centred gospel teaches that Jesus exists to please you. And to bring you pleasures and glory. Never mind the fact that the Bible tells me that I exist for him. To give him pleasure. And to give him glory. This is the difference between a man-centred gospel and a God-centred gospel. The man-centred gospel focuses on what any unbeliever might set their heart on. And says you can have it. That's not the gospel. But that is a man-centred gospel. Beware. It's out there. It's closer than you think. And thirdly, the problem with this man-centred gospel, which keeps it from being a God-centred gospel, is that it proclaims Jesus as saviour, but not as Lord. This is where what Graham mentioned before from Mark chapter 8 comes in. It proclaims Jesus as saviour, but not as Lord. We sang this morning, make me a captive Lord. The Apostle Paul was constantly referring to himself as a bond slave of Jesus Christ. That kind of language is never heard when it's man-centred preaching. The fact of God's wrath against sin and sinners. The necessity to turn from sin, to do away with sin, to pursue righteousness. The need to follow Christ in trusting and faithful obedience and that it may well cost you sacrificially to do it. The fact that in terms of your physical welfare, in terms of your personal circumstances, you may end up worse off for being a Christian. There are hundreds of thousands of believers around the globe for whom that's true, you know. Their physical state, their personal circumstances, from a worldly point of view, are worse off as a follower of Christ. 
And those who want to preach a man-centered gospel will say, how can you even think of presenting things like that as part of the gospel? Who's going who's to want that? Well, I think Stephen in Acts chapter 7 and the martyrs in the Reformation understood it as they prepared to lose their lives in the most gruesome fashion for the gain of knowing Christ. Didn't they? A man-centered gospel can't begin to contemplate such things. That's not the kind of loving God we want to present to people. That's not the kind of God I want to be under, people will say. No, indeed. So you've invented one of your own. And your Jesus is not the Jesus of Scripture. Here's a quote from an American pastor. The fact that he's American is irrelevant. Just happens to be the quote I found was an American pastor. Listen. All unannounced and almost undetected, there has come in modern times a new cross into popular evangelical circles. The old cross is a symbol of death. God salvages the individual by liquidating him and then raising him again in newness of life. God offers life, but not an old, improved life. The life he offers is out of death. It always stands at the far side of the cross. If I see a right, the cross of popular evangelicalism is not the cross of the New Testament. It is rather a new bright ornament upon the bosom of a self-assured and carnal Christianity. The old cross slew men. They were slain by the message of the cross. The new cross entertains them. The old cross condemned. The new cross amuses the old cross destroyed confidence in the flesh. The new cross encourages it. The new cross does not slay the sinner. It merely redirects him or her. It gears him or her into a cleaner and jollier way of living and saves his self-respect. Christ calls men to carry a cross. Mark chapter 8. The man who is crucified is facing only one direction. He cannot look back. The crucified man on the cross is looking only one direction and that is the direction of God and Christ and the Holy Spirit. The man on the cross has no further plans of his own. Somebody else made plans for him. And when they nailed him up there, all his plans disappeared. When you go out to die on the cross, you bid goodbye. You're not going back. If we would preach more of this and stop trying to make the Christian life so easy, we would have more converts that would last. When do you think that was written? 
Could have been written last week. Could have been written last year. I don't know when it was written. But I know who wrote it. It was written by an American preacher called A.W. Tozer. And he died in 1963. It's not a new problem. It's always been around. I dread to think what he'd make of the modern situation today. Things like that back in the 1950s, presumably, when he was writing. People are told about a Jesus who is saviour. But they need also to be told about a Jesus who must be Lord. Or they have no salvation at all. And then the fourth thing is that judgment and repentance are low key. Judgment, repentance... Indeed, far too often, words like that are never even mentioned. The God-centred gospel is the gospel of John chapter 1, where we are confronted with a God who is eternal and holy, the maker of all, and therefore the one to whom you will one day stand and give an account. The one who has all the authority he needs for him to define what is good and what is evil. And we have absolutely no say in the matter. He it is who establishes that moral code which we find in the Bible and which is even in our own consciences. He it is who has the authority to command us to live by it and to punish us when we don't. He it is who is establishing his purposes in the world and accomplishing his will and doing all things which seem good in his sight. He it is who has indeed loved us with a very great love. But such is our sin that it cost the life of his very own son to make atonement, to bring about reconciliation. And what we require is a complete new birth under his kingship and lordship. And nothing else will do. With that new birth comes a new heart. With that new birth comes a new nature. With that new birth comes new understanding. With that new birth come new affections and new desires. They're received by faith. And they're the gift of God's grace. And you're no longer your own. You belong to him. You no longer seek to live for yourself. But him, you no longer serve yourself, you serve him. 
you no, you no longer please yourself. You no longer want to. You live to please him. Because the gospel of the Bible is a God-centered gospel that produces God-centered people. Not only is Christ your great high priest who has obtained your salvation, but he's your prophet whose word you must obey. And he is your king under whose rule you now live out of a heart that burns with love for him. This is the gospel. And it's a God-centered gospel. And yes, there are glorious promises, both for now in this life and into all of eternity. But I am not at the center of them. God is. Because all of them are yes and our men in Christ, who is eternal God, which is the very first thing that John wants us to know. Too easily in gospel work, if we're careless, though I readily admit sometimes out of zeal, but careless nonetheless, we can turn the focus onto man when it must always be on God. It is his gospel. The saviour is his son. He makes us to be his people. We are his church. We're living in his kingdom. They are his purposes. And all things are for his glory. It's a glorious gospel. It's a wonderful message. He's an amazing saviour. But never can the focus be on men or women. The focus always is upon our God. One day, all of the Lord's people will be standing before him in glory. We will have only one thing in view. We will have only one thing in mind. We will have only one desire upon our hearts and that is to worship him, the lamb once slain. And he will be our everything. But he should be now. 